your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive achievements inspire positive thought and action. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music and learn more about him at chrisnoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Fabulous music and lots of genre, too. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Visit my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for podcast updates and follow this podcast. Please share your favorite episodes, too. And go shopping. I have camping mugs, clothing, duffel bags, lots in my shop at yourpositiveimprint.com. Listen and follow my show from Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, or of course, listen from your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to hit that subscribe, download, or follow button, Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Welcome back to part two with Amy Griesack. Last week, hi, Amy. Hello, hi. <laughs> Last week, Amy talked about nature and how to go about getting into nature with confidence and the understanding that Mother Nature is bigger than we are and how can you enjoy it. Well, part two today is on the earth which bore us and sustains us. Today, Let's talk about those raised gardens and how you start it. Well, my family on my dad's side had a farm, just a very small farm back in Ohio, and always had gardens going, that type of thing. But I really got into it when I was 10, and that was my first job. I started weeding gardens for a woman who owned a little shop. She had an antique shop and herb gardens that was about a mile down the road. So I would ride my bike up and she was very patient teaching me what to pull and what not to pull, <laughs> that type of thing. Mm. And talked about the uses of the plants, that type of thing. She was very much into the Shakers, which was a religious sect in the 1800s. They utilized the plants. They were fabulous at everything they did crafts wise, including gardening. So that's where I got my start. Why? raised gardens. Why not just plant it right smack in the earth? Raised gardens are great because you can control the soil better. Where we are in central Montana, while it's a great place to raise wheat in a lot of these areas, we're part of the Golden Triangle, it can be rather challenging for the home garden because we have so many different soil types. A lot of times predominantly clay, so it's a very heavy soil. So when you are utilizing raised beds, you can decide and you can have better control over the amendments that you put in the garden and how you improve them. I didn't have raised beds growing up in Ohio because we didn't need them so much. I mean, they're great because you can also control weeds better, you know, looking back. But as a child, I just took a shovel and turned everything under. But when shortly after I moved to Montana, had purchased property by West Glacier and was so excited. I started building gardens before the house was even built. And I remember getting my shovel and putting it in the ground and jumping on it 
and just teetering back and forth because it was nothing but rock. It was all <laughs> big cobbles, like glacial till. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do here? And so I just started popping up the rocks and I ended up building 220 raised beds out of stone. And oh then my would, gosh. I would haul in soil, topsoil. I think I went through 14 dump truck loads of topsoil to fill all, fill all those gardens. So you did it with stone. You can use anything almost for raised beds, which is great outside of things that are potentially toxic, like railroad ties. For the longest time, those have been very, very popular because they're great. They're square, they're solid, but mm, with the chemicals that they use to treat them, and that's the same with also treated lumber, you have to be careful there. But you can use wood, you can use bricks, Stone stone was always my favorite medium. These were rounded things, so they didn't stack very nice at times, but it became very much a Zen thing because you're building those short walls, 10 to 12 inches tall, and you're looking for those rocks that fit and you're putting everything together so it fits. And so, yeah, it was, it was almost a therapeutic as well as a practical. What's on the bottom? When I first did those, I didn't put anything, but in subsequent times when I'll build a raised bed, depending on where I'm going to put it, if I'm going to put it in a yard, you know, right on top of the grass, I'll put cardboard down first, or sometimes, oh, eight layers or so of newspaper. And that's just helping smother out the grass that's below it. Because if you put enough between the lawn, the grass, and the top, then you can pretty much smother out the grass so it's not going to come through. Oh, okay. So the the rock beds that you started, the raised rock beds that you started, and you didn't put anything underneath it, did you no. have a problem with the grass coming up? There wasn't any grass there. It was all glacial. Okay. So, And I did have some weeds eventually, and but weeds are going to come in regardless. With raised beds, you can control them better, but even with the soil that you bring in, even with airborne weed seeds... Raised beds definitely minimize the weed impact, but doesn't eliminate it. Just because you have so much more soil that a weed has to come through, if it's going to come from the bottom. And sometimes they do, because I even have some raised beds, and we have bindweed, which is, it's a tenacious, they need to find a good use for bindweed, because it'll grow, the roots will grow 20 feet deep, and it will stretch out more than 20 feet wide per plant, and it will grow through anything. It will, yeah, it will go through any fabric you put down, anything, but it's still, even with raised beds, you can keep on top of it easier, you know, pull it easier and weaken it. How high would, would listeners want to do their rock bed? Uh, How? Minimum, you want a minimum, depending, it kind of depends on what you want to plant, but a minimum of six inches. And then, but you can go from there because a lot of people, the beauty of raised beds too, you can bring them up to waist height. And so if you did something like that, you may not put soil the entire, say two and a half, three feet, whatever you want it. You might put bricks or rock or, you know, something to kind of take up space in the bottom, but yeah, you can bring it up. So you never even have to bend over. So it's great for people who have, you know, wonky knees or, you know, you just, you don't, don't need to bend over, which is great. It, it brings gardening to everybody. So instead of you going down to your garden, the garden comes up to you. 
and it makes it accessible for more and more people. Now that is awesome. With raised gardens, can people use heaters? There's heating coils that you could put in the soil if you wanted to warm up the soil. And the thing that I found with the raised beds, particularly the ones that I had out of stone, is they would warm up earlier in the spring and then they retain that heat in the fall. And so it kind of buys you a little bit extra time on either side of the growing season, which was lovely, especially where I lived outside of West Glacier. You can put a nice hoop over it and create a mini greenhouse effect. And so when you have, say, a plastic hoop over it, and then you can use floating row covers on the inside, you can really keep your garden going into the fall for a long, long time. If you're going to create a simple hoop system, you can just use, I think it's half inch PVC, and you get holders and you push those down in the soil and just arch it over, and then use like a six millimeter greenhouse plastic. So that's going to be nice and heavy. So it's not going to tear in the wind and it'll last several seasons, but it still allows enough light to come through. Because that, that's what you're balancing. You're balancing that durability with allowing enough light for the plants to grow. And where you are in Montana, what is the growing season period? We are zone three, which means we'll go down to about negative 30 in the winter. And our spring can get a little iffy. A lot of times we will freeze. We had a huge snowstorm the third week of May this last year. But we'll typically go to the third week of September for a frost. So we have a pretty solid three months. You know, sometimes you might get nipped in between, but as long as you have floating row covers or some way to protect your vegetables, you can usually get through it. This is very educational. Talk about the zones and what you mean by zone three. Every country has a different scale, pretty much, but ours are from the USDA, and they basically look at the wintertime temperatures and how cold something gets, because that's going to determine what trees you can grow, what perennials you can grow, that type of thing. And so zone three, like I said, we get to be about negative 30, really nice temperate zones or five, six, seven so those are ones that have a fairly mild winter, so you can grow a lot, lot more. <laughs> it's much, much more forgiving. My sister-in-law lives in Hungary, and I don't think they have the same type of scale in Hungary as what we do. Let's go to soil. Soil is tough because it's very regional, and you can mix your own with soil that you could find at a nursery using a combination of compost, Peat moss or cocoa core is actually more sustainable to use than peat moss. And some people use perlite in it or vermiculite to help lighten the soil. And uh, sometimes you could get bags of topsoil. Other times you can go buy a truckload and be able to fill. So it really kind of depends. No matter what kind of soil you start with, you're always going to have to amend it. So you always want to add that compost every year, manures, de depending after testing the soil to understand what your soil needs and just keep improving, improving that soil. There are kits that you can buy at gardening centers that you just take a small soil sample and with distilled water, I think typically, and shake it and it'll tell you how your levels are for your macronutrients. 
So the nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Once you know where you're there, then you can add amendments accordingly. So can you just put a whole bunch of earthworms in and then you never have to amend anything and just leave the earthworms to do what they do? No, because different nutrients come from different sources. So earthworms are definitely beneficial, but without a balance, like with the phosphorus and things like that, those have to come in from other sources. And a lot of times those are mineral sources too, like bone meal type thing. Because even though we have the big three macronutrients, you also have all these micronutrients that they all balance and they work with each other. So if you're lacking one, the plant can't use another. So it's, it's a gradual process and it's a lot of learning by trial and error. And, but I always tell first-time gardeners in particular, just, just add some compost. It'll be fine. <laughs> and compost is another topic for sure. I bury my scraps. That, that's all I do to compost. Compost piles are great with your brown materials and green, but I never have had the patience for them because you have to water and watch the temperature and turn them. So there's a lot of different ways to compost. And my personal favorite is I just bury all my kitchen scraps. So every day I have my bowl on my counter and I throw my coffee grounds in there, complete with the paper because that'll decompose, eggshells, everything else from the kitchen. And then in the evening, I just go out in the garden and I dig a hole and I bury it. And it breaks down extremely quickly. And the earthworms are happy. That's what I love because when I dig into the soil, I get all these earthworms per shovel. And so when the earthworms are happy, that's always a good sign that you're doing something right. And then I bury it. And the only things you don't really want to compost are like avocado pits. They'd take a, or citrus peels. Those take a really long time. But pretty much anything else you would throw in a compost pile, just bury it just a few inches under the soil. So, And, and how, when can you use it? It's just there all the time. It's just so right now I've been planting in the area where I'm going to put my garlic in about a month. And so it'll, it'll be fine. Oh, so, so you don't unbury it to use no. it anywhere. You just plant. I yep. love that. Yep. It's easy. No turning. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The way you're composting can go right in the raised flower or raised oh, vegetables. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's super easy way to go. Tomato plants mm-hmm. tend to, at least in New Mexico, they tend to grow very tall and very <laughs> quickly. Does it matter that the soil is going to be so deep when you plant your tomato? Well, with the tomato, they're really good to plant deep. And you know, with if at all possible, when I have a tomato plant, I'll take off at least the first row, sometimes several rows of leaves, just so there's maybe three or four on the three or four kind of rows of leaves on the top and plant it deep. Because with tomatoes, as deep as you plant it, roots are going to form. And anytime you have a good root system, you have a good healthy plant. And so you can plant tomatoes pretty deep. And then when they're growing so tall, so number one, that's probably an indeterminate tomato which is a tomato that's going to keep going until you cut it back or frost or freeze kills it. 
if you want a shorter tomato, you want a determinant plant. And it's just, there's different varieties, different really cool cultivars that are these different ones. So a determinant plant is gonna grow to a certain size and all its fruit is gonna ripen about the same time. So if you're somebody who likes to can tomatoes or freeze them in large batches, you want determinant plants because then all your tomatoes are gonna be ready so you can process them. If you're somebody who likes to enjoy them throughout the season and you love those big plants, grow the indeterminate and they grow really tall and they just keep producing until something shuts them down. And I like both. I like both the different varieties. In my greenhouse, I have an indeterminate, but like for us here, you know, we're into September and so any of the little tomatoes that are on the top of the plant, I know there's no way they're going to ripen. And even in August, I did this actually. There, there was not enough time for those to mature. So I cut the plant back severely, pruned it, because then all the energy goes into ripening the tomatoes that are big enough to mature. So got to kind of be rough with the tomatoes in the cold climate. Okay. Yeah, we get late freezes every year, so oh. we don't plant. And we're at 6,000 feet, our house. Okay. My husband doesn't like to put the tomatoes in until after April 30th or even the first week in May because we get those late freezes. And then you end up losing your plant and then you have to start all over again. So, I can give you a trick for that if you want to plant early. Please do. Okay, my absolute favorite gardening tool, and we've used this ever since I've been little. They've been around for decades. They're called Wall of Waters, and it is a water-filled teepee, basically. And so you plant your tomato plant, and you put a five-gallon bucket over it upside down, and you slip this wall of water around the five-gallon bucket. just to hold, It just holds it upright. And then take your hose and you fill each of these little cylinders around the wall of water with, with water, pull the five gallon bucket off and it collapses. So it's like a little teepee. During the day, the sun warms that water. I've had them blizzard, buried in snow. And I've never lost a plant in probably 40 years of using wall of waters. Okay, I'm gonna have to get a better yeah. visual so, here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and if you're soil isn't warm enough in the spring, you can put up the wall of water ahead of time and just reach down and plant the tomato inside of it. It's a little bit more awkward, but if your soil is a little cold, you put the wall of water up first. It warms up the soil for a week. Get your plant in. You're good. Okay, You'll never, so, never lose one. So the bucket, a five-gallon bucket with a bottom to it. Yep. So put it's it upside, upside down, down over the plant. Yep. And then how do you do that wall of water? Then you just set the wall of water. It's empty. And you put that around the bucket and then you just fill it. And then once it's filled, you just reach down and grab that bucket and pull it off. And then the wall of water is self-standing. How can that be? They're great. Oh, they're great. Do you buy it? The Yeah. Yeah. Oh, never, I thought I we were like, trying to create it ourselves. Oh, no. They've been around. They were actually developed in Kalispell, Montana. And have we used them when I was growing up back in Ohio. They were great. I think $4 a piece maybe, but they last for years. If I was you in New Mexico, I would take them off as the tomatoes are getting big. I would remove it. But some years 
some years I forget to take them off <laughs> and the tomatoes grow and the tomatoes tend to ripen first within the wall of water because it's this nice, perfect little environment. I put squash in them and peppers in the spring because a lot of times I get antsy and I want to plant things outside, but I know it's too early. You know, you, you know you're going to get a frost. But if I can put them in wall of waters, they'll be fine. And awesome. plus, for us, it protects it from the wind. You know, the wind for us is such a big force to deal with that when they're in the wall of waters, they're protected there too. Another thing that's really good with raised gardens or really any other garden is mulch. Nature doesn't like bare soil. So many times we'll have gardens that are very neat and tidy looking but it's just not how nature would have it and that's why weeds are always growing <laughs> but i always like straw because it's nice on your knees in between so many of my gardens when they're in the ground you know raised beds are great because you don't have to kneel down a lot of times or or as much but straw in the pathways is really nice and even in raised beds even straw around the plants or other mulching materials there's so much available but it helps keep moisture in and then it also breaks down and becomes part of the soil. And another thing that I'm getting into more, which last year was a bit of experiment, I'm gonna try it again, are living mulches. So planting clovers and vetches and things like that that grow right alongside your plants. And the hard part is, is the appearance because we're used to that nice and neat look but when you have these plants, they look like weeds growing next to your tomatoes. What you do is you grow them and then you cut them down or mow them down, depending on where you're growing them. And you just put what you trim right next to the plant. So that's a mulch within the living mulch. And it really builds up the soil structure. The worms love it. The insects love it. It's really good. It just is getting past that mental barrier of the appearance of it. So that's something I've been playing with more. Because even though I constantly add to the soil, you, you can never do enough to improve it. It's a living thing, and you always have to feed it and keep it happy. Cool. This is so awesome. It's fun. There's a lot, as long as I've been doing this, there's so much to learn. And that's what's cool. You know, there's always a new variety to try. There's always a new technique to try. And, and that's the other thing, too, is what... A technique that may work for somebody may not work for other somebody else, and that's okay. It's it's perfectly fine. It's like every gardener finds their own groove. Oh, and you have such a groove. You've got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then we're going to go into the last minute inspiring words. I think when it comes to gardening, I just encourage people to get out and grow even if you're growing a single pepper plant in a pot or you're putting in a quarter of an acre of corn, it's just no matter what you're growing, the sheer fact that you're putting something in the ground and having that faith in the future, I think says a lot about each individual and about society. And there's a reason that gardening is one of the most popular hobbies in the world. You know, a lot of people garden for their livelihood or for sustainability, but there's that absolute joy with watching something from seed to whatever you harvest at the end, whether it's a flower that you adore or something that you have for dinner. 
There's just something about gardening that is super, super special. This has been absolutely phenomenal in learning about gardening. Amy Grisak, thank you so much for sharing your garden groove and your joy of gardening. Thank you very, very much. It's absolutely my pleasure. One of my favorite things to do. I can tell you have such joy in doing it and and I appreciate that you've shared how to do it. So thank you for being on the show, sharing your positive imprints. Thank you, Catherine. Grow your garden and become sustainable while enjoying the benefits. Documentary filmmaker Sarah Lanier features Amy's gardening on the YouTube channel North 40 Outfitters. And learn more about Amy and gardening from her website, amygrisak.com, A-M-Y-G-R-I-S-A-K. Please leave positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening podcast platform. Download, subscribe, or follow this podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?